0: Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: You and Me Both is a production of iHeartRadio.
6: Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is You and Me Both. You and Me Both comes out every Tuesday, but I couldn't wait to share this special bonus episode with you because today I'm talking to U.S. Senator and Democratic nominee for Vice President Kamala Harris. I first met Kamala back when she was running to be the DA in San Francisco. I knew her over the years, when she was DA, when she was Attorney General, and I got very close to her sister, Maya Harris, who was one of the senior advisors on my 2016 campaign. And of course, I'm thrilled that she is on the ticket with Joe Biden. I know a little something about the slings and arrows that uh, have come her way in this role, because it's hard to be first, hard to be first anything. There's also, let's be honest, some sexism combined with racism. But one thing I know is that Kamala is tough and she can handle it all. And she will be a vice president for all the people of our country. It's an absolute delight to have her on the podcast.
7: Hi, hi, hi.
6: Welcome to my brand new podcast. I
7: know, this is so exciting.
6: Well, I'm thrilled. I know how busy you are, so we're going to get right into it. I've been watching you out on the trail. I love the fact that you're out there and you're not only going to events, you're, you know, dancing with bands, you're really having a good time, Kamala. And, you know, that's, to me, half the battle, you know, get out there and be that happy warrior that you've always been. I want to start by, you know, talking about the experiences that led you to be where you are today, obviously, your experiences in public service and the public eye. But let's start before that. Tell me and tell our listeners about, you know, your childhood and especially your formidable mother. (laughs) Uh, I love reading about her, but I want to hear about her directly from you.
7: Well, first, let me say I'm just thrilled to be with you, Hillary. And thank you for everything you are, everything you do Everything about you inspires me in so many ways I can't begin to describe. So thank you. So my mother, I mean, let me start by saying that I've only known incredible and strong women like my whole life. There's like a whole collection of them who helped raise me. And as you have often said, a village does it, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so my mother, she was the eldest of my grandparents' children, four children, and you know, she grew up at a time where she was expected to her accomplishments would be to get married and have children. But she wanted to study science and she wanted to cure cancer. I oh, uh, you know, no lack of ambition there.
3: <laughs>
7: <laughs> she convinced my grandfather that one of the best schools to learn was UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Without my grandfather knowing actually, she applied. <laughs> And God accepted.
6: Good for her. And then
7: informed my grandfather that this had happened. And this was in the 1950s. And mm-hmm. he said to his daughter, who at the time was 19, if this is what you want to do, then I will not stand in your way. Mm. And so having never been to the United States, my mother got on a plane at the age of 19 by herself and arrived in Berkeley, California. Mm. And immediately because of... How she was raised and who she was, she just became attracted to the civil rights movement that was starting to really evolve in a very passionate way in Berkeley and Oakland, California. And, you know, my mother was all of five feet. I joke that if you ever met her, you would have thought she was, you know, seven feet tall, but she, I don't actually don't know if she was exactly five feet. <laughs> <laughs> she stood on her toes. Oh, yeah. she. She, But she had a huge presence. And she raised us, my sister Maya and I, she raised us with, you know, certain principles. And one was that it is your duty, you know, not you're not being charitable or benevolent. It is your duty to concern yourself with the condition of other people and to help them. And so it was never a debatable point. It was literally, you know, because duty is, you know, for those of us who, who feel strongly about duty, it's not a choice. It is right. the price you pay, if you want to think of it as a price, but your responsibility for this place on earth that you occupy.
6: Right, right. You know, there's a great line from one of my mentors in life and work, Marion Wright Edelman, mm, who always would say service is the rent you pay for being on this earth. That's right. And That's right. I I sense that from you talking about your mom. And and when you think about her being 19 in the 50s, she lived through the big transition in India.
1: She saw the
6: impact of the nonviolent Gandhian movement. And so coming to Berkeley and being attracted to, you know, the civil rights movement would just be a continuation uh, for her.
7: There are so many stories I could tell about her that have influenced who I am. My mother was a fighter for women her entire life. Her specialty was breast cancer. And, you know, before I was probably aware of it, I was hearing her passion for the importance of women receiving dignity in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard to think now, Kamala, but your mother had to have
6: been aware as she was doing her research into breast cancer that until the 1980s, experiments for breast cancer were not even performed on women. And so she had to fight for the rights of the people that she was really advocating on behalf of.
7: Oh, it was profound. I'll never forget. One night she came home. Maya and I Often, we were what you call latchkey kids, right? We'd come home after school, and, and my mother would come home hours later. But when we came home after school, there were always fresh-baked cookies. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Yes. Oh, wow. But we were never allowed to eat dinner until after Walter Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good rule. Oh, I yeah, that rule. D- that's how it all worked. <laughs> but I remember one night my mother came home and she was, oh, raging mad, raging, raging. Because you see, and to your point, a full mastectomy had been performed on a woman. And this person, I don't know if it was a doctor, I don't know who it was, but someone, now this is going to be very vivid. So mm-hmm. this maybe should be the disclaimer for the audience, but on a metal tray, Someone was just walking around with this woman's breast. My mother was raging mad Mm
6: -hmm.
7: because it gets to the point about the dignity of women. Right. And what she said, and now this is going to get even more vivid, (laughs) but I'm going to give it to you. (laughs) She said, Do you think that they would have walked around with a man's, you know what? Without at least giving it the dignity of putting something over it or doing right?
6: Right. Oh, I love your mother. Uh, Oh
7: yeah.
6: (laughs) (laughs) I love your mother. I I mean, as you know, I I spent two years with your sister. I know. uh, Because Maya was one of my, you know, senior advisors, and you know, I loved her and loved you. Now I love your mother. (laughs) I mean it's you know, all, all part of the family. Yeah. You know, do you think about how your mother mothered you? When you think about your yes. um, your stepkids, yes. you think about Cole and Ella. You think about your nieces. Do yes. you hear sometimes your voice sounding like your mother?
7: <laughs> often, <laughs> often. I'm now at a point in my life where I have fully embraced the fact that I've become my mother. <laughs> I'm not rejecting it. It's not surprising me any longer. It's just what has happened. <laughs> well, you certainly inherited her love of cooking. I have. And it really is one of my joys. And it's, you know, in each of us has a way that we express our love. For me, cooking is one of those things. And mm-hmm. and I love cooking with the kids. Sunday family dinner. It's like, Sunday family dinner. There's no mm-hmm. question that's what happens. You know, whoever's in town comes over. You know, the kids help me cook. And it's, you know, sometimes depending on what's happening in my life, I'll start working on Sunday family dinner on Friday. You yeah, know? Yeah. You also did tell me in a in a phone
6: conversation recently, you've been teaching your husband, Doug, to cook.
7: Yes. So let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember our conversation just right after the pandemic hit, And I was ironing and folding during our conversation. I'll never forget that (laughs) because we started having chores. And one of the things I realized about my husband that I had not realized before the pandemic hit is that clearly his mother never required him to clean his bedroom. (laughs) So we had to have a little conversation about that, including me asking my mother-in-law why. (laughs) And so then I realized as much as I love to cook, cooking lunch and dinner seven days a week, it's mm-hmm. a lot. Right. And so i we just had a conversation. I was like, honey, I need you to, we're going to have to figure this out. So he he pulled the straws Wednesday and Saturday.
6: Uh-huh. That would be
7: his days. And then he was trying different things because, you know, he was trying to be kind of impress me and be a bit ambitious. <laughs> but it, it kind of reached a head when he was making something in the cast iron skillet and we were in the apartment and the fire alarm just started raging. Oh, the smoke. The oh. smoke was just I could smell, I started to smell it. I was, I was reading my briefing book. I, started, <laughs> I, do, I remember those days. Right. And I started <laughs> to smell it and then I started to see it. And then there I am with my briefing book under the smoke detector, <laughs> waving it back and forth, saying, Tim, honey, turn off the stove. <laughs> and oh. um, so we got to the point where now he agrees that he should just have three things Mm -hmm. that he perfects and does well, and we don't need to experiment with anything else.
6: I think, well, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) We'll be back right after this quick break.
4: We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials
3: cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it.
4: From iHeart Podcasts.
3: It's like the police knew who he was before they got here.
4: A story about money, power, and corruption.
8: sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause
4: more harm in the world.
5: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals,
7: You know,
6: during these pandemic days, you know, people are discovering all sorts of things about their family members. And, and you know, I think about you going to college, going yeah. to Howard, then going to law school. What was your first job out of law school?
7: My first job out of law school was in the Alameda County District Attorney's Office.
6: And why did you decide to become a, an assistant district attorney?
7: You know, I I was born in Oakland, California, which is at the heartbeat, I think, of Alameda County, which is a very large county. And, you know, Hillary, there's not a black man I know, be he a relative or a friend, who has not been the subject of some form of racial profiling, unreasonable stop or excessive force. Mm -hmm. And I grew up understanding the impact of law enforcement on the community in which I was raised. And I knew that it needed to be fixed. I I experienced it. It was a lived experience. And I said to my family, I said, you know, why is it that we traditionally, you know, when we want to change these systems, we're on the outside? Shouldn't we also try and go on the inside? Mm -hmm. And that's what I decided to do. And, you know, one could say I decided to go up the rough side of the mountain. but (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was about saying, look, from the inside, we can have an impact. And the impact was you know, it was varied. The impact included that I specialized for a long time in child sexual assault cases.
6: That is so hard, Kamala. I mean, I did some cases. I I ran a legal aid clinic. I was very active in legal services. I would be appointed to cases by judges. And those cases were so difficult.
7: It honestly, it's the worst of human behavior because Mm -hmm. you are talking about children and the vast majority of the cases we're talking about someone who's in a position of trust with that child, right? And for me it was always about trying to figure out a way to make the point that everyone deserves dignity in the system, but also justice. And justice takes on many forms depending on the injustice. Mm-hmm. I for a long time, you know, worked on what we also needed to do around what I called sexually exploited youth, but the system called teenage prostitutes, which is that these girls, mostly and boys, would be arrested and put in juvenile hall. Meanwhile, they're being trafficked and we treat, you know, Johns and all of that as though, you know, it's not a big deal. And so I actually, during my years, you know, early years, created a safe house in California, in San Francisco, so that if these kids were picked up, that they would go to the safe house, not to Juvenile Hall, and they would be given support. Good for you. And so many of them were runaways. Of course. They were often thrown out of their homes. Of course. Of course. Or, or fleeing abuse yeah. in their own homes. Right. Exactly. Ex- all of that. And we're calling them teenage prostitutes. You know, so it was that work. It was the work of, um, I created one of the first environmental justice units of a DA's office in the country because, you know, I saw that the community that you will not be surprised had a Annual per capita income of for families of fifteen thousand dollars was also the community where all the dumping was happening
6: that's exactly, right and so exactly taking on those happens. polluters
7: it was the work of of saying that we need to also you 'll appreciate this more than many I think that we have to incorporate the concept of redemption mm-hmm. in what we do in the criminal justice system and and it's an age old concept right it means Essentially, you know, we all will make mistakes. And for some, perhaps that rises to the level of being a crime, but isn't it the sign of a just in a civil society that we allow people a way back? And so I created one of the first reentry initiatives in the country focused on predominantly young men who were arrested for drug sales and getting them jobs and counseling. And, and a lot of them were young fathers and getting them parenting support And then dismissing the charges against them, but you know these were challenging days. This was in the early two thousands. People literally called my program a hug a thug program, but it ended up being a model and Mm -hmm. a model for the country. Well, you were
6: really ahead of your time in so many ways, Kamala. Both in Alameda County, then when you went on to be the district attorney for San Francisco. I think that's the first time I met you. Yes, and you brought the same level of you know positive energy to what you wanted to see done in the DA's office. And then, obviously, you went on to be elected statewide in California to be the attorney general. And, you know, you've always, in my observation, tried to be on the side of the underdog. You've always tried to literally stand up for the dignity. And with the story that you just told about your mother, I see the through line. And I so much appreciate that. And in the criminal justice system, you're right, that's hard. And Mm -hmm. we've learned a lot of tough lessons. I mean, obviously, you know, there are bad guys, and they've got to be punished, and you have to make sure that happens. But for the vast majority of people caught up in the criminal justice system, there are other and better and more dignified ways to handle them. So when when you started your campaign for president, I remember you and I sat down in L.A. Yeah. shortly before you made your decision, and now I'm thrilled that you're the party's uh, vice presidential nominee. I, I'm so excited for you, and I think we've heard a little bit about your getting the call from former Vice President Biden, but maybe you could take us behind the scenes about what happened when you did get the call. <laughs>
7: well you know we'd all been hearing that he was close to making a decision mm-hmm. and you know i'd gone through a process so i i knew i was on the list and then my team said well um he's going to call you today they set up a call they'd like to set it up for today mm-hmm. so i said okay and then shortly thereafter my team said he wants to do a zoom oh. and you know how you have Zoom days and you have those days that are not Zoom days? <laughs> no, I do. And,
6: you, you know, for Zoom days, you got to do your hair right, and you gotta your do makeup whole, on.
7: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's another two hours it could be, right? And so, And this particular day was not a Zoom day. <laughs> Couldn't we just do a call? You know, exactly. Exactly. And so I had to do some really quick, fancy footwork and... Um, and Doug was home because, of course, we're all working from home. And so we were pretty much non-functional until, you know, the, the allotted time for the call. And so I went into our makeshift Zoom room and Doug, I thought, was in the kitchen. So then I took the call. And, you know, and I ha- you have to hand it to Joe. And it's really it's, it's part of what I love about his character and his nature. Immediately at the beginning of the call, Hillary, he went right in there and said, let's do this together. You know, he didn't build up to it. He didn't create the tension in it. He didn't, you know, talk for a while and then say, he literally just right away. And Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I was deeply humbled and honored and... He got Jill on the, his cell phone. She was at an event. And so then she was on speaker as he and I were on the Zoom. And then she and Doug had bonded during the campaign, during the primary. I love seeing them together. Yeah, they're really, they, they they've are, been traveling together. They've been it traveling looks together. Great. And, um, and so she said, well, where's Doug? And I, you know, shouted out his name. But, of course, Doug was actually ear-planted on the other side <laughs> of the door. So he was well aware. Well, I would not nothing less. for him to come in. <laughs> 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 and he came in and we had the best conversation, just the four of us. And oh, that makes me and so then, happy. You know, immediately that, thereafter started packing and went to Delaware the next morning.
6: We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. We started talking about this incident.
4: Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts.
3: It's like the police knew who he was
8: sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world
5: listen to creating a con the story of bitcoin on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
8: if you love sports and true crime then there's a new podcast from executive producer dan patrick and hosted by me jay harris that you won't want to miss playing dirty sports scandals
9: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of times you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if... no, 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 no. You know enough right now and if you needed to know more he would show you hey this is steven furtick
6: Of you know Doug and Jill out there, and you and Joe joining them. They're really they're having a good time. It just looked right. So you have a debate coming up on uh, October seventh, where you're facing off against uh, Vice President Mike Pence. How are you preparing? What's that feeling like?
7: You know, it's um, the difference between this debate and the debates in the primary are you know many, and in particular that. Then it was mostly about speaking up about my position on various issues as compared to my colleagues on the stage. This time it will be about, you know, requiring some level of knowledge, if not mastery of Joe's record, the vice president, Mike Pence's record, Trump's Mm -hmm. record, and then of course, defending my own record. So that's different in terms of the process. But I guess the biggest thing just to be candid with you is to be prepared for what is, I think, very likely to be a series of untruths. I think you should be prepared for that. I think
6: you should also be prepared for the slights, the efforts to diminish you, Mm -hmm. um, you personally, you as a woman Mm -hmm. who's about to be our next vice president. So I I do think that there will be a lot of uh, maneuvering on the other side to try to put you in a box.
7: Mm -hmm. It's... On some levels, surreal in terms of it all, and I don't necessarily want to be the fact checker mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, depending on how far he goes with whatever he does, you yeah. know he's going to have to be accountable for what he says well and and you know he he and Trump will say
6: anything and assert anything, like what a great job we did on the coronavirus, and you know people are sitting there going, "What is he talking about but Uh, You you will be well prepared. And before, I don't know exactly the timing, but I think even before the debate, you may have a chance to be on the Judiciary Committee examining this uh, latest nominee to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So you are really in an unusual historic position. The candidate for vice president, who's a sitting senator on the Senate Judiciary Committee, questioning Judge Amy Coney Barrett. How does that, you know, feel Mm -hmm. to you? And do you have any thoughts about, you know, losing Ruth Bader Ginsburg and watching, you know, this president and the Republicans under McConnell, you know, trying to force through a confirmation in the face of an election just weeks away?
7: You know, I was seated while she lay in state, Mm -hmm. just, you know, few days ago and it's something i know you knew her and your story and her story are very intertwined i looked at that casket hillary and you know she was such a in size small Mm -hmm. and i looked at that casket and there was without any question an inverse relationship between her size and her stature
6: Oh, that's great. That's a great way to I, describe it. I mean, it. Mm-hmm. and
7: I and I just couldn't help but think about the life that she lived. And, you know, I think it does a disservice to suggest that she just gained popularity, you know, after the notorious RBG kind of moniker, because it was her whole life. Right. Her whole life. And right. she did what you and I know is required of lawyers who are fighting for civil rights. She built up a pathway for so many women, and she did it brick by brick, Mm -hmm. case Mm -hmm. by case. She had the patience and the foresight and the fortitude to build it up and see it through. That's exactly right. Right? That's exactly right. What a life well lived. It was interesting. The rabbi, in speaking that day, as she lay in state, said, along the lines of she earned the right to rest in peace, right? Well, you know, Bill and I went to the Supreme
6: Court to pay our respects there. And, you know, we had a lot of time to talk before we got there about the impact that she made. And and your description is so on point because... When she started, there was no guarantee. Mm -mm. She saw wrongs that she wanted to help rectify, and she was in pursuit of justice and equality, plain and simple, under the Constitution. And she wanted to make sure that under the 14th Amendment, disadvantage, discrimination based on sex would also be part of the scrutiny that courts were supposed to give to any discrimination of any kind based on race, right? Yeah. And so, when I think of her, I think of her as a mighty warrior, even though right. she was, as you rightly say, you know, a petite woman, but a woman with enormous energy and conviction uh, that carried her through. You know, she's now well known for her dissents, which means that she lost a lot of important cases. But I remember her saying once that she'd hoped that her dissents would serve as you know, a guiding light to future courts when they saw the injustice that had remained because of the majority opinion. So I really like the way you've described her. And I know you've got to get back on the campaign trail. So I I, I can't keep you much longer, but you know when you I want about- to
7: stay and talk to you forever. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Well, that would be fine with me, but I know what it's like to, you know, have nervous. I could just
7: listen to nervous you and talk people, with you forever. Um,
6: you know, standing there pacing. You know, their heart beating. I'm just their ignoring that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's end on by wrapping up Justice Ginsburg and and your journey. You know, she broke a lot of barriers for women, and we have a lot of barriers, as you know so well. You know that are are still before us, but. I believe you're on the brink of putting, you know, one of the biggest cracks in that glass ceiling. How does it feel for you, Kamala? Because I was thinking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she used to say, you know, what's the difference between an accountant in Brooklyn and a Supreme Court justice one generation? right? You know, what's the difference between a committed young scientist and the next vice president, one, right. generation, one
7: generation.
6: Reflect on that for me. You know, both the responsibility, but, you know, the, the pure joy of going where no one's gone before. I mean, you can speak volumes about this in terms of your personal experience. Well, sure. But it's building on it. It's like what you yeah. were saying with Ruth. It's like one brick at a time. One, and,
7: yeah.
6: you know, my experience, I think, has, you know, paved the way for others.
7: Uh, without any thrilled. question. Without any question. Your experience has paved the way for me and so many others without any question. But we have to keep going. Yeah. And we have to day. keep going. But, you know, one of the things that you do, among the many things, is you have always, I will speak for myself, encouraged me and just been so supportive with advice, with just with warmth. And as you know, none of us achieve these, these moments and none of us achieve our success without people who believe in us. And so in that way, it's very humbling because there are a lot of folks who are part of this moment. Yes a yes, lot of folks there is that village yes really, <laughs> really it is true. and it is it continues throughout your life but i do also feel the weight of responsibility you know as my mother would say you may be the first to do many things make sure you're not the last i love that keep those doors open i mean and that's what you do hillary you really do you have earned the right to just say i'm done <laughs> <laughs> have fun with it, everyone. I've got beautiful grandbabies. I'm good. <laughs> That's true. I do. <laughs> and you keep giving. And I, I just, I can't not say that because it just oh, needs to be thanks. said and I want to say it. It's, it's uh, among the many things that are very special about you. That is one of them.
6: Well, thank you, my friend. And I'm looking forward to the debate. I'm looking forward to the judiciary committee. I'm looking forward to the rest of the campaign and I am really looking forward to uh, seeing you stand up there and get uh, sworn in as the next vice president of the United States. So thank you for taking some time to join me on You and Me Both uh, (laughs) today and take good care of yourself. We really need you, my friend.
7: Thank you, Hillary. It's great to be with you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
6: You and Me Both is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Julie Subrin and Kathleen Russo, with help from Huma Abedin, Nikki Etour, Oscar Flores, Brianna Johnson, Nick Merrill, Lauren Peterson, Rob Russo, and Lona Valmoro. Our engineer is Zach McNeese. Original music is by Forrest Gray. If you like You and Me Both, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. You can subscribe to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. I'd really appreciate it. We'd love to hear from you, so send us your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows at youandmebothpod at gmail.com. We'll be back with our regular episode on Tuesday, my conversation with two other phenomenal leaders, Gloria Steinem and Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha. Don't miss it.